invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. Well, we'll be in there primarily. I lied to you. There is one whole verse in chapter 12. I hope you can forgive me that lie. Um, I want to give you a story, as I made mention earlier this week, was our um, denominational gathering annual sessions, our yearly meeting, Sunday through Tuesday. And it was their first virtual online yearly meeting. It was rather different. Um, each night we had some worship services, but I was also busy each day with meetings, board meetings, and business meetings. It was a different experience, but... I want to tell you about last year's yearly meeting, yearly meeting 2019. Many of you met our superintendent, Jim Lashana, and that was his first entire yearly meeting as our superintendent. He was called and approved the year prior to that. Most yearly meetings, we have a special speaker during the worship sessions, but our yearly meeting last year, 2019, he was our special speaker. He spoke every evening. And the last worship service night, I remember it ending in a very sobering way. If you've heard him preach, you should probably know that his heart is church planting. It's missions. He loves that idea. And I remember approaching Jim after the last night of that service out in the fellowship hall, right outside what's called Bauman Auditorium on George Fox campus and shaking his hand and telling him, I said, you know, Jim, the biggest thing I'll take away tonight is seeing your heart. And I explained it to him like I'm about to explain it to you because he ended uh, his sermon that night with a call for people who may feel called to either plant churches or to go on missions. And he, he played this video listing all the unreached people groups, all the nations of peoples who have a very dismal percentage of gospel-reached persons. And as that long video played, I saw our superintendent get down on bended knee watching the video, taking off his glasses and weeping. Just weep. Lost people without Jesus. As Paul, one of the guys we're talking about today, he says to the church in Rome, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Missions. Missionaries. This, that's our theme today. While Dean filled in for me last week, I feel like I haven't missed a week because Dean happened to catch a part of Acts that was kind of an aside story from the narrative that we're in. I last preached on the founding of this church in Antioch, really, and and now Luke returns to that church and that story And whenever I return preaching through Acts. So I invite you to stand one last time with me if you're able, and we'll begin in Acts 12.25, and let's read through chapter 13, verse 12. we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were 
worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, So depart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had John to assist them. When they had gone throughout the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man, uh, skipped a page, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've called us to be disciples. And whenever we look at the passages where you make that calling, it's nothing easy that you call us to. Father, how can such a gift be so freely given but be so costly? We need your Holy Spirit to accomplish the great commission that you've given us to do as your disciples. No one, I believe, is exempt from fulfilling your great commission. Help us, as we just sang, to see that people need the Lord. Help us to do what you call us to do here and now. Father, would you please give us the grace to be obedient and respond to you. Pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. And I pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps some of you remember whenever I was with you two weeks ago, we had a very uncontroversial study together. There were really no weighty subjects that we tackled. It was on prophecy and tithing and offerings, right? Nothing big. <laughs> But those two were connected because some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch and they prophesied a famine, a famine in which Luke then broke the fourth wall. He left the narrative and he verified for us. He says, indeed, this famine did occur, occur, occur. there we go. In response to this, uh, the Gentile Antiochians, they looked past their differences with the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea. They gave monetarily in, in hopes that during the famine they'd survive as a church. And I don't know, Luke didn't say this, but I'm assuming Antioch probably hoped Jerusalem would be wise stewards with the money, uh, helping all those in need because of the famine. Now, because of the historically documented famine, documented even outside of the Bible, um, we're able to kind of date this, pa- this timeline, this uh, episode, what is actually the beginning of Paul's first of three missionary journeys. That's what we're entering today as we study these words. 
It's anywhere from 45 to 47 A.D. So if Jesus was crucified, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended around 33 A.D., we're talking about 13 to 15 years after is when all this is about to take place. And it starts with Antioch sharing weighty friends. Weighty friends. That's our first subheading today, sharing weighty friends. And I'll explain that after we read our first four verses we're studying again. We read again, beginning with 25 of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, that is, taking the offering from Antioch to Jerusalem for the famine, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Back in Acts 11, whenever we talked about the founding of the church at Antioch, Barnabas was a leader from Jerusalem dispatched basically to Antioch to see how things were going. A subject for the Jerusalem church was the fact that now Gentiles, non-Jews, were becoming Christians and just a fact of life. The Jews thought that only Jewish people could be saved because they thought their God was God only concerned with the Jews. And the good news of Jesus Christ says Jesus himself that God so loved the world. The world. And so the first church needs a little time to swallow that. It's going to come to a head in two chapters in Acts, actually. But Barnabas goes to Antioch. He verifies, yes, these Gentiles do love Jesus. What do you know? They are saved. And I'm sure that's how he said it. No, probably a little bit differently. But they're doing great. So much so, Barnabas jumps in. He's kind of a big wig, if you will, from Jerusalem and the way that Luke writes It seems like Barnabas is a leader among equals in Antioch. Nevertheless, Antioch, the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, is cultured, it's metropolitan, it's full of philosophers, has heavy intellectual thinkers, and Barnabas thinks it's right up Saul of Tarsus' alley. Saul's had retreated, Saul had retreated to his hometown of Tarsus after being threatened in Jerusalem years before, so Barnabas goes, finds him, brings him back to Antioch. And so now you kind of have Barnabas and Saul, many ways, co-pastoring Antioch is how I view it. The church founders almost. The famine hits. Barnabas and Saul takes the offering to Jerusalem. They're back. There's a reunion. There's, hey, we missed you. Do you want to start preaching a series on Acts? Okay, maybe not. But since they're living it. But you get the idea. These are some respected guys. The beloved leaders have returned. And while all this is happening, Luke lets us in on the fact that there have been some other heavy lifters, some other leaders rising up in Antioch. So again, we read Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. But let me just talk about Mark real quick. I don't know if Dean brought him up too much, but John Mark was introduced in Acts 12.12. John being his Jewish name, Mark being his Roman name. That's kind of the same story for Saul Paul. (laughs) But Mark's house, or at least Mark's mother's house, is where Peter went to after he was miraculously freed from prison. This is the same Mark who likely writes the book of Mark. 
It's the same Mark who is likely near Jesus when Jesus was arrested. In the book of Mark, Mark flees naked while guards are encircling him, Jesus. True story. You can look that up later if you want to. Mark 12, 51 and 52. It's an unnamed man that many believe Mark to be telling about himself. But this guy is from Jerusalem. He's not an Antiochian church leader. But the rest listed here are in chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Now many wonder if this Simeon is actually Simon of Cyrene, because we're told that some men of Cyrene were among the first disciples who came to Antioch. Now Simon of Cyrene was the man who carried Jesus' cross. Or helped him carry Jesus' cross. We don't know if this Simeon is that Simon. People wonder though. All among the prophets and teachers were also Lucius of Cyrene. Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. So this lifelong friend of him is probably a man of great wealth and influence. And then we also list Saul. A few teachers... So among Quakers, or among friends, we have a saying called weighty friends. No, we're not talking about body mass. (laughs) We're talking about spiritual weight, spiritual influence. So we hold to the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. At the same time, we're not overlooking the fact that many congregations just seem to have within them spiritual giants. Weighty friends. Friends whom Jesus seems to use for weighty tasks. We even see this in the disciples. There's Peter, there's James, and there's John, and then there's Andrew, and Bartholomew, and Simon the Zealot, and some of the disciples seem to have stories told about them, but then the other disciples, you have to do some digging and see their stories. And just like all of us have meaning and value and purpose and do what God tasks us to do for many, for Jesus, Many times, behind closed doors, out of the limelight, others are doing tasks that may garner them uh, less cultural weight. Does that make sense? If... I believe Luke is setting this story up to show that along with the weight that Barnabas and Saul carried were still other folks at Antioch. Simeon, Niger, uh, Luce, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen. And Luke frames it this way because then this happens. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How do you think Antioch Church feels about this? Some of the resistance Christians feel in their personal lives can come from other Christians, the Christian body. Jesus says in Luke 14, same author, Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Matthew would tell us, recording the same conversation, that Jesus is talking about the fact that disciples must love Jesus more than these things. The love must be so greater, so much more passionate, that a chasm between a disciple's loyalty to Jesus and a disciple's loyalty to everyone else. The illustration of hate here. The point is, is friction can occur. Resistance can occur. The Holy Spirit, God, the Lord of His people, says about Barnabas and Saul, the former being nothing but a great character so far in the book of Acts, right? 
Uh, you know the story about him. He lays down his field and he brings the money to the church. He, he's the one who connected Saul to the church. He's the one who went and got Saul to bring him to Antioch. And then the latter, Paul here, he's the second greatest writer in the New Testament. And he's going to have a resume that just blows everybody else out of the water. And God shows up to Antioch and says, I need you to set these two apart. You ever have pastors who left the church where you were at and it hurt? Valley View Nazarene, my home church growing up, every time a pastor left, hurt feelings. Some arguing. Hey, it's not your time to leave. You can do more here. Others just leaving the church because they followed the pastor, not the church. For Barnabas and Saul and for those willing to listen at Antioch Church, this is God speaking Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that's the second point I want to make, is that God is calling Saul and Barnabas to work. This is post-conversion for the both of them. I feel like we live in this weird cultural Christianity moment where it seems like conversion and salvation is the primary calling of God that we all hear. And well missions and basically anything else besides conversion and salvation, God calls only a few people to that. See, the 11th chapter of Hebrews is called the Hall of Faith, and almost all of it, if not certainly all of it, records examples of faith to tasks God called people to. Not just mere belief and acceptance in God for salvation. Do you hear the difference? God says, I have worked for Barnabas and Saul. And not Barnabas, Saul, or anyone at Antioch Church has a right to say back to God, but they're already saved. You already called them, God. God's like, yeah, I have their phone number, and I'm calling a second time. (laughs) And a third time. (laughs) And here's what I fear, Christian. I fear that you and I think, I've been saved. I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll just go to church the rest of my life and see what happens. (laughs) When Luke is specific here, and he says, the Holy Spirit... The one who said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit works in the church. The Holy Spirit lives in you and the Holy Spirit can talk to those with ears to hear. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit will call you. You will have a task. You will have many tasks that he may set you apart for. It may be small tasks Talk to this person. Make this phone call. Put this in the offering. Send this money to that ministry. Give money to pay the bill of that person. Heaven forbid it may be big tasks. Move. Change careers. Reconcile that relationship. Forge a close friendship with that person. Yes, that person. (laughs) Does the Holy Spirit want to set apart and call you to work today? I beg, plead, and urge you, be listening to that. Be attentive to that. It can and does, and I'm not afraid to even suggest, it will happen if you have ears to hear. We don't know the details. All Luke tells us is that Antioch Church eventually submits, maybe it was right away, submits to the will of the Holy Spirit in this matter. Did people leave over this decision out of hurt? Were young souls who were counting on Barnabas and Saul to disciple them, were were their hurt feelings? We don't know. Here's what the Holy Spirit records for us, though, through Luke. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What's interesting to me is that the church fasts and prays over this matter. 
See, this for me suggests the possibility that perhaps Barnabas and Saul knew, but perhaps the church needed to fast and pray and settle within their own souls the inevitability of what's happening here. And then they laid their hands on them, something we practice too, symbolically showing support and prayers, those that hoping that God is touching those whom we're touching. The, the sent them off is one Greek word here, and it's also used as let go, or they loosed, or they released. This has got to be hard. <laughs> Having sat through a few pastoral transitions as a congregate, I know it can be hard. But we're talking about an axis before Facebook, <laughs> before phones, before emailing, and letter writing was not something everyone did. But basically, the, the figureheads of Antioch's church origins are leaving. And one of my commentators, as hard as the words are to swallow, I think says it right when he says, too often the church has selfishly kept her most gifted men at home. Ah. You know, last fall after Landon was born, Valley View Nazarene celebrated its 40th birthday as a church. And uh, and, and one of the last Sundays that I wasn't preaching here, many of you remember I took about two years off not preaching. <laughs> Felt like two years. And... uh because of paternal leave due to Landon being born, I went to Valley View Nazarene and we had a time of sharing and celebrating and, and among all the sharing, much was made about, uh, how Valley View Nazarene had great missions trips to Arizona and Mexico and many musicians were raised up at Valley View Nazarene and a couple of pastors were raised and, and sent out. I was one of them, another guy named Norm Lee. He pastors a Nazarene church in Hepner, Oregon. And it hit me, not to say that I have an idol. But all of the, that, all of those things, missions, trips, musicians, pastoral leaders, was under the ministry of my mentor, Hunter Mizar, who pastored that church for seven years. And around the same time I was in the talks of coming here, Hunter announced his resignation from Valley View Nazarene to go to Weezer, where he's still at today. His departure, I think, was probably one of the most kindest and well-executed departures any pastor can do, all things considered, But some folks still left the church. (laughs) Some left right after Hunter left. Others left when the next guy came. And my point in all this is that I love what Antioch Church does here. They loosen. They send Barnabas and Saul off. They didn't selfishly harbor the gifts of Barnabas and Saul. And Luke has framed this passage stating at the beginning that, that three other prophets and teachers would still be in Antioch. Simeon, Lucius, and Manahan. Antioch wasn't selfish. They shared weighty friends. And when Barnabas, Saul, and we learn John Mark as well leave, they have a smart strategy. Beginning with verse 4 in chapter 13, we read, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Before we talk, talk about that smart strategy... Luke reminds us here at the beginning of verse 4 that along with the church loosening, consenting, and sending the disciples off, that it was a directive of the Holy Spirit to send them as well. And then from Antioch, they went to Seleucia. That's about 16 miles west and a little bit south. And then from that is a port, they went to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, the homeland of Barnabas and some other disciples already. And what strikes me here is this. It's a land that's already inhabited and already influenced by the gospel. In fact, when Antioch was planted back in chapter 11, we're told that 
Cyprus was a land traveled to and witnessed by disciples who fled from Jerusalem under the persecution that began after Stephen died. And so Cyprus is not an unreached land entirely, but unbelievers still exist in it. As one of my commentators says, already many of them had heard the gospel, but the work of evangelism has only been started. Now it must be pushed farther. God's got reasons for his callings that may not make sense to us. Why did Barnabas, who's from Cyprus, leave Cyprus in the first place to go to Jerusalem? Why didn't Saul and Barnabas stay in Antioch? The church is still growing there. What about Jerusalem? And what about just aim for the big one already? How about, Paul, just go straight to Rome? That's where you're going to get all the, you know, meet all the big wigs. But God has specific tasks specific seasons, and specific people for his purposes to go to places. Barnabas and Saul are going to Cyprus because God called them to Cyprus. (laughs) That's the end of the story. That's the point. Obedience. Let's not overlook that the Spirit's ways are above our ways. Let's use logic and reason and whatnot when necessary, but sometimes what's necessary is this, God's call and our obedience. We see, though, again, a smart strategy. And Saul and company are using some logic and reason in their travels. When they arrived in Salamis, which is about 130 miles west across the Mediterranean from Seleucia, uh, the port and probably one of the most important cities in Cyprus that area, in that era, uh, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Any of you familiar with Acts as a whole, you know that this is the default mode of Saul. Let's go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Even though um, that is the default mode, if you will, I believe that Saul knew that the Jews had the Word of God, the Old Testament, in their possession. And so the point is, is Saul could start from a foundation. He could argue from the Scriptures the truth about Jesus, the Messiah, prophesied in the Old Testament, whereas if you just go to a Gentile, many of them could care less about Jewish holy texts. (laughs) And many of them may not even consider them the Word of God as Jews did from synagogues. And so we do see as they continue, when they had gone throughout the whole island as far as Paphos, that's about a 100 miles on the opposite side of the island, And some wonder if they literally went throughout every town or if they're just going through the primary Roman road, hitting the the villages that they did. Some of the times maybe they detoured. We don't know. But Luke's interest is, is this, is that they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? We're in our third S of the day. We've had Antioch sharing weighty friends We've just looked at smart strategy, and now we see satanic opposition. The word magician here is the same word used for magi in Matthew's gospel. 
And the character also reminds us of Simon, a Samaritan magician. If you remember back in Acts, I think it was chapter 8, who basically tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter and John. And I don't know if you don't know this, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and uh, Peter rebuked him in some rather harsh words. And this magician is named Bar-Jesus, Jesus being a common name in that day. Uh, Bar meaning son of, son of Jesus. Now, it is rather ironic, though, when you consider the idea of Jesus of Nazareth, and then Saul calls him the son of some other being, the devil. (laughs) Indeed, this man's powers are satanic. They're evil. It may not surprise us, especially if you remember last week's text, Herod, another Jewish man, was so violently against Christians, and not even a good Jewish practitioner in their own right. The entire gospel accounts gives us examples of humble good Jews, but also dishonest, satanic bad Jews. (laughs) And just like American Christianity or cultural Christianity, the Judaism in this day was not altogether unaffected by other spiritualities and other cultures. Deuteronomy 18, 9-12 easily puts this elemis, which may be a term in the original language meaning sage or dream interpreter, it puts him to shame. Because he's obviously by no means a devout Jew, just a Jewish man ethnically. And he's an advisor to the Roman ruler of the region, no doubt taking in a comfortable lifestyle by his position. (laughs) And while Elymas rejects and outright pays no mind to God's word, Paul and Barnabas preaches God's word. And if Sergius Paulus accepts God's word, well then Elymas might suddenly find himself serving a Bible thumper. And Elymas' services may no longer be pleasing or acceptable. At least Elymas might think that he'd butt heads with him, but that, amplified by demonic opposition to God, simply just wants to keep another soul from coming to Christ. Now in verse 9, finally Luke refers to Saul also as Paul. And unlike many name changes in the Scripture, which God seems to do, this, is just, this isn't a matter of God changing Paul's name. This is actually Saul, who is Jewish and also a Roman citizen, having two names. Saul is his Jewish name. Uh, he's a Benjaminite from the same tribe of King Saul of the Old Testament that we were talking about in First Samuel a while ago. And then Saul's Roman name is Paul. And since we are in the passage that begins Paul's first missionary journey, and Paul will largely be a missionary to the Gentiles, to the Romans, This is why Luke will now refer to him as Paul, and he will be known as Paul throughout the majority of the Bible. But some wonder, too, they take into consideration who Paul is talking to here. Sergius Paulus. And they wonder, Paul becoming all things to all people, finding a good reason to bring about warmth and familiarity. Oh, your name is Sergius Paulus. Well, hey, did you know that my name is Paul, too? Could be that as well. But Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, confronts this fact that there is an enemy out to thwart the gospel from spreading. Luke's going to pull no punches. In fact, in much of the remainder of Acts, Luke's going to peel back the layers and show us that there is no doubt a war raging. A war that rages and persists to our day. Nevertheless, Luke, the Holy Spirit, shows us so clearly in Scripture that we wage a war that is altogether spiritual. Our war is not with flesh and blood, but with spirits. But with the enemy, the devil, who is an enemy of all that's righteous, is an enemy full of deceit and villainy, and he's also an enemy that will not stop making 
crooked the straight paths of the Lord. In other words, it's satanic. I want to bring it home for you. If you're wonder, if you're wondering, am I really called to missions? The tasks are that are so beyond me. And if it seems so foreign, if it seems discomforting, hard, and if there's so much friction and hindrance and opposition, know that that's purposeful. That that's intended. <laughs> there's an enemy who wants to keep you comfortable. There is an enemy that wants you to think that God desires to accomplish His mission apart from you instead of using you. There's an enemy that maybe fears that though he lost you to God, he can still do great harm from keeping you from bringing others to God. There's an enemy that says, by all means, don't be disciples. Don't leave all, forsake all, and lose all for the sake of the gospel and God's kingdom. Give in to the fear and friction and resistance. But Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, says, no, you're making it crooked. The path is straight. It is Jesus Christ and His kingdom. It's Jesus Christ and His authority. It's Jesus Christ and His mission. And he's directed Paul to little old Cyprus where the gospel's already been present because God knew that Sergius Paulus needed saving. And despite Satan's best efforts, despite... Elemis's efforts, Sergius Paulus is saved anyways. That's our last S, our last point today. He is saved anyway. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Paul talking to Elemis here. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I brought this up when we talked about Saul. When he was converted in Acts 9, he had blindness. Blindness is an Old Testament curse for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29 says, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. Elemis is going blind, and also indeed in his mind he's losing. Sergius Paulus to Christianity, he could indeed... Inherited a rather unprosperous life. And the curse continues, and you shall be, on, be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. Blindness, especially in the gospel accounts, and even with Paul here, should remind us symbolically of something, and that is sometimes people are sometimes blind to God. The disciples were some, from time to time, and, and I wonder if you or I aren't blind to God. I wonder if you're skeptical about this. <laughs> does God, does God call me to sold out service? You're a disciple, aren't you? <laughs> Is Jesus called a discipleship really one that raises the stakes so that I might find friction because I'm loving Jesus more than my parents, my heritage, my traditions, my family, my places, my hobbies, that in comparison, to how much I love Jesus and His gospel, it might appear to some that I hate all these other things. People like Elemis are willing to trade in Jesus for comfort. Accompanied with Paul and Barnabas' words to Sergius Paulus was a miracle, a curse of blindness. And even when God's wrath is revealed, even when a punishment, a curse of God is revealed, that even drives Sergius Paulus to believe. This passage right here that we just covered has been called the beginning of Acts part two. 
It's really the third great and final movement of Acts, also the longest, because finally a church has purposely sent out missionaries to Gentiles. Because in Acts chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, it's been a little bit more subtle, right? Persecution has drove Jewish Christians to other areas. A Roman centurion requested the presence of Peter. But now that Antioch church is a distinctly Gentile church and it was planted, and now the Holy Spirit and that church have agreed together to actually send missionaries to a primarily Gentile land to start bringing in more Gentile Christians. Unlike Cornelius, the centurion who feared God, we find Paul basically show up to someone who didn't seem to have any inclination whatsoever to God to begin with, Sergius Paulus, before the word of the gospel was preached to him. And so the idea is the Great Commission is going to the ends of the earth. The illustration has been made before that there are 28 chapters in Acts. And you and I are in chapter 29. I don't mean that to say that Acts is an unfinished book, but disciples of Jesus are still called to the ends of the earth. And so this compels me to ask you, where are you at? What is your story and what are you doing in Acts chapter 29? It could be that like the Antioch church congregants, unnamed are not feeling called to leave and uproot where they're at, but Antioch church still must go on and Antioch church has ministry to do and missionaries like Barnabas and Saul to support. One of the items on the agenda for our yearly meeting sessions this past week was approving the people uh, our denomination's nominating committee had put forth for different boards in our yearly meeting. And one of those names put forth was Kevin Davis for the Board of Local Outreach. And I was approved. I'm on the board. And I don't know. Do with this as you please. But I wonder if there are sometimes Andrews that are around. See, Andrew was the guy who introduced Jesus to Peter. So tells us the evangelist John. And and maybe you're a person comfortable introducing people to Jesus. And then maybe there are some people who are like Barnabas. Barnabas is a guy who sold his land and then gave to the church. He's a guy working for the church, it seems like, in a more official capacity. He left Jerusalem, went to Antioch, checked it out, connected Paul to Antioch. He's supporting and going with Paul to Cyprus. And maybe when Barnabas is busy doing all this church stuff here, there are... Andrew's still on the local level connecting people to Jesus. Some of us, I wonder, we fear we are lacking missions for Jesus locally. Like, we don't talk much to others locally. We're not Andrew's. And I wonder if you'd consider accomplishing the Great Commission another way. We're part of a denomination that's really fired up about church planning right now, and they're also fired up about revitalizing churches And that's actually the primary hope of the board I'm a part of. How to accomplish church planning and how to um, revitalize churches, how to do these things. And I wonder if in the vein of Barnabas, if you would feel called to serve our church in a bigger way than Woodland by considering denominational input. Now, some of you are like, oh, well, Kevin, I'm already immediately not interested in that. Thanks. Um, I'm going to give you some papers of the seven boards that our yearly meeting has. And I'm not going to tell you to do anything except for just pray and consider. Instead of just immediately writing it off, maybe the Holy Spirit might talk to you if you pray to you, and you can come back to me seven days from now and say, God and I talked it over. I have no interest still. God doesn't want me to serve in this way. That's great. But I'm going to hand out these papers, and if you're part of Woodland Friends Church, you're also part of the yearly meeting. And if you'd consider serving on one of these boards, if, if the Lord does speak to you and say, you know, I feel like I haven't been doing much enough here, 
and I do want to serve on a board, let me know and I'm going to email the nominating committee. And you could be serving our denomination on one of these boards. This is just one way that you and I have access to be about the Great Commission, perhaps in a way that you haven't thought of. Maybe you felt behind in accomplishing the Great Commission here, but God has a mission for you that may not be entirely local. But nevertheless, it's a mission that's still for Him. Does that make sense? We'll go ahead and pray, and then I'll pass out those papers and dismiss you. Father, um, the great scandal of the Great Commission is that you would call us to be thoughtful in bringing the Word of God to not just people locally, but to those regionally and to those around the world. Father, I look in your Scriptures and I see that you give people different gifts. Father, there are some great Andrews I know in our congregation, people who can strike up a conversation with anyone about Jesus and want to so strongly lead them to Jesus. And many of people, because of that gift you've given them, are receptive to that. Father, I wonder if there are some Barnabases, some people who who are serving the church in a way that's different than maybe we usually think about, and that is serving him, I don't know if you would call it organizationally or, or denominationally, but people who are on boards and are putting things and putting... Um, putting things together so that the Great Commission can be accomplished in these other ways. And so I pray that if you would move upon anyone here today to to make themselves busy with the Great Commission in ways they haven't thought of, that you would put it into their hearts, help them to be obedient. Father, I trust you to speak to each and every person about that task. Father, help us, whether we're Barnabas or Andrew, to still be about your Great Commission to be thinking of our neighbors, to be praying for our neighbors, to be praying for our missionaries that we send out, to be praying for your church universally, no matter the denomination to be spreading, and for your great commission to indeed uh, finally make its way to the ends of the earth. We love you and we thank you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.